All right. If you have your Bibles with you, please go ahead and open them now to Exodus chapter 1 again with me this morning. Exodus chapter 1, the title for this, sermon, this morning's sermon is This is War. Last week, if you remember, we began this exciting journey of studying and preaching through this historic book together. This book, which was written thousands of years ago, but of which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that it was written down for our instruction, for our benefit. This book can and will, by God's grace, strengthen and empower us to live the lives that God has called us to live. If you remember last week, we began in chapter 1 by looking at Israel's suffering and God's faithfulness and our hope. And we saw all of that in verses 1 to 14. Today I want to reread some of those verses because we want to look at the passage uh, which is verses 8 to 22. So let's begin by reading this together. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. And God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Have you ever heard the phrase, you don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight? Have you ever heard that phrase? You don't want to bring a gun to a knife, you don't want to bring a a knife to to a gunfight. It, it means that you don't want to come ill-equipped to whatever task or fight you are entering into. To think that a little Swiss army blade is enough when bullets are whizzing by you is a bad idea. You won't last long in that fight. You will lose. 
I have a very funny memory from when I was 17 years old. I grew up in New Jersey, and back then my, my family heated our home with a wood stove. And so we would stock the wood stove every night with lots of wood in hopes that it would last the night and warm us throughout the night. Well, one night as a 17-year-old, I woke up to find that my room was filled with an orange glow and a thick cloud of smoke. And so I ran out of my room into the other room only to find that the entire wall over the wood stove was engulfed in flames. And the entire house is filled with smoke with my entire family sound asleep. I screamed louder than I have ever screamed before in order to wake them up. My dad came running down the hall, and he and I knew exactly what to do right away. I don't remember who called 911, but my dad and I jumped into action. We had two fire extinguishers in the house, one by the wood stove and one in the kitchen. And so my dad went went and got the one by the wood stove, and I went and got the one by the kitchen, and we started using them. And my fire extinguisher had some effect on the flames, but very little. My dad's had much more. And it was after the, the, the fire was completely put out by the firemen that everybody was safe and sound. My dad started laughing at me. He started laughing at me even in the stress of the moment because I had gone and I had gotten the kitchen like little grease pan fire extinguisher. It's like a 20-ounce spray can. And in typical Joel form, I take everything so seriously. I have this hero complex. I'm ready to conquer the day. And I came into that room like, it was like a spray gun, like, like trying to put out these huge flames. My dad just laughed and said, you look like such an idiot. <laughs> I was bringing a knife to a gunfight. I was not really prepared for the fight that was before me. Friends, as we continue to study these first chapters of the book of Exodus, what we begin to see is that there is a massive war that is happening. There is a war that is happening between our one true God, Yahweh, and a little tiny pharaoh in Egypt who represents evil and Satan. This war is serious. This war is dangerous. This war, as evidenced in this chapter, is painful. And the question is, how is this war going to be fought? First of all, who is going to fight this war? And as we saw last week, we must keep in mind that the hero of this story is first and foremost God himself. He is the hero. He is the one who is fighting for his people, and he is the one who is going to make this pharaoh and his superpower nation of Egypt look like a 20-ounce fire extinguisher. But what is going to become very clear very quickly is that there really isn't that much of a fight at all. God is in control, and God will always win the day. Pharaoh has brought a knife to a gunfight. But we also see that God's people are a part of this war as well. Even though God is the hero of the story, he chooses to use his own people to accomplish his purposes. And so it is right and good for us to consider how he fights for us and how we are called to fight with him. And to consider how we are called to participate in this great war. And we are going to find a wonderful example of how to fight in this war through the example of these two midwife women who it says feared the Lord. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. We are at war, and the fear of God is our greatest, our greatest weapon. We are at war, and the fear of God is our greatest weapon. We have three points. Number one, 
the war. Number two, the man of war. And number three, our weapon in war. Let's begin with the first point. Number one, the war. I wanted to read all of verses 8 to 22 again this morning because it's very important as we begin this this journey in Exodus that we rightly set the scene for what is going to unfold. The book of Exodus is an amazing true life story of God's love and redemptive power for his people. But in order for us to rightly celebrate the redemption of the story, we must fully see and feel and understand the oppression of this story. And the oppression is so severe. Chapters 1 and 2 in particular are the literary prelude to the adventure that will follow. And as we saw last week, chapter 1 is is filled with with Israel's suffering. In verses 12 to 14 alone, there are multiple words that speak of their their suffering, of their their work, of their hard service. The, The word ruthless is used two times. The word slave is used two times. Actually, in the original Hebrew, many of these words, which are translated differently in our Bibles, are the same Hebrew Word And the effect of it, as you read it, is that it's the same drum being beat. The people of God were made to serve and serve and serve and serve. Hard labor. Mortar and bricks are heavy burdens to bear. The people of Canaan, Joseph's family, they were shepherds, not masons. This is hard work. And now listen, it's one thing to be forced to labor in a way that we don't want. Many of us don't like our jobs. Many of us feel like slaves in the workplace. But, but our work often feels like a necessary evil, something that everyone has to endure. And though we like to describe it in some of the worst terms possible, we know deep down that it's just a part of life. Is that what this is? Do the Israelites just have hard jobs? Do they just have an unfortunate occupation? Do they need just a career change along the way? No. No, there's much more going on here. And we see that there's much more going on here when we look at verses 15 to 22. The the second half of chapter 1 shows that this is about as severe a situation as you can imagine. The, 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 The Pharaoh is so fearful of the Israelites and how they might displace him that he not only puts them under uh, hard labor, but he goes on the offensive. He goes on the attack, not just to force them to work, but to kill them. In verses 15 to 16, he calls the Hebrew midwives to himself and he says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. This Pharaoh is at such enmity with the Israelites that he wants to kill them off. He probably lets the girls live because he wants to intermarry with them and strengthen his own nation. But he does not want the seed of Israel to continue through the men. He doesn't want the men to live. And so he commands that the boys be killed. Oh, friends, listen. There are many not-so-subtle hints here that what is happening is not just indicative of the local people of Israel in Egypt at this time. No, there is a cosmic war that is being waged that this is just a glimmer of. Last week, we, we saw that God was behind the scenes, right? Even in the midst of the suffering, God was being faithful to his promises, His call to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply in Genesis chapter 2. 
His promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation in Genesis chapter 12 and to multiply him greatly. God was being faithful to his word. He was doing all these things. He was accomplishing his ways. And so throughout verses 1 to 14, we see that the people are being multiplied by him. Those things tie us directly back into the first chapters of Genesis. But listen, so does the attack from Pharaoh. His command to kill the Israelite babies. Do you see how that is directly contrary to God's plan for his people to multiply? God intends for us to to multiply and to grow and to prosper in his grace. But this Pharaoh is not only subjecting them to forced labor and to cruel labor, but he is contradicting mandate number one from God, which is to be fruitful and to multiply. Listen, as as faithful and, and careful Bible readers, we need to make these connections. Exodus is not just a standalone story. No, it is a theological history which speaks not just of the fate of these Israelites, but the fate and the experience of all of God's people in this sin-sick and fallen world. It's a historical account, but it has a theological purpose behind it, which is for our good. And the theological point of chapters 1 to 2 is to show us that there is war going on. And it's not just a war between Pharaoh and Moses, but between God and Satan himself. I don't want to read too much into it, but up in verse 10, when it says that Pharaoh said, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. That that word shrewdly, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent was, or the serpent was said to be crafty when he came to Adam and Eve. And then, and then certainly in the next few chapters in Exodus, we're going to see serpent imagery multiple times. And friends, it's absolutely supposed to remind us of Genesis chapter 3 and the curse of the serpent. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God spoke first to the serpent and he said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis chapter 3, when, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, God said that from that time forward, there would be a great war between the seed, the descendants of the woman and the seed or the descendants of the serpent. Church, we saw that war everywhere in the book of Genesis, and that is exactly what we see here in Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites' oppression is not just because Pharaoh is a bad manager and a mean man. No, the Israelites' oppression and hard service is supposed to be seen by us today as a reminder of the cosmic battle that is being waged between God and Satan and his evil forces. Pain and sorrow and grief in your life Pain and sorrow and grief of all kinds, they are reminders of the need for an ultimate Savior to save us from the schemes of the evil one. Your illness, your depression, your mistakes this past week, your broken relationships, the horrific evils of this world, the, the war in Ukraine, gun violence, racism, the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade just next week, 50 years of children being destroyed. All of this reminds us that there is a great war being waged all around us. Well, one commentator said this. He said, 
we see then in this chapter, we see then already at this early stage of the book what will become much more pronounced later on, the real antagonist in the book of Exodus. This is not a battle of Israel versus Pharaoh or even of Moses versus Pharaoh, but of God versus Pharaoh. The Egyptian king, as we will see in the following chapters, is presented as an anti-God figure. He repeatedly places himself in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. And this behavior is already anticipated here. We must remember this. There is a great war between our God and evil all around us. My friend, do not let your circumstances, your difficulties, your sorrows make you bitter and hopeless towards God. Don't feel as if it's just your life that hurts so much. Don't be convinced that your broken marriage is just a you and your spouse issue or your sorrow and pain is just because you messed up along the way. No, our sin certainly has implications, ramifications, consequences in our lives. But as God's people, we must remember that so much of our suffering is not part of of a direct result of mistakes we've made, but is part of a much bigger narrative in which this world is suffering and groaning under the weight of sin. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that in Exodus chapter 1, which talks so much about Israel's suffering, listen, it does not a single time, not once say that it was because of their lack of faith or because they didn't believe in God enough or give more money to the church. It wasn't because of a mistake in there. There is a glaring absence of cause for this suffering in Exodus chapter 1 other than Pharaoh. So many times we want to look at our suffering we want to look at our pain. We want to look at our disease. We want to, we want to say that it's because we did this wrong. This, this family member died because we made this mistake. If you have cancer, you must have sinned greatly in some way. If you struggle with infertility, you must not have enough faith. You must have sinned. But Exodus doesn't say that about this suffering in chapter 1. No, it just paints a picture that suffering exists in a place that God actually brought his people to. And it exists not because of our faith being too weak or our sins being too great, but because of the fallenness of this world and our need for a deliverer from it all. Church, we must not forget to remember that God said there would be enmity. And every day of your life this week, you felt that enmity between God and the serpent. There's war being waged all around us. As God's people, we must remember that our suffering is seen and known by God. He knows that we hurt. He knows that we suffer. And he knows what he's going to do about it. And that brings us to our second point, point number two, the man of war. The man of war. Chapter 1 has 22 verses in it, and it's not until late, it's not until verse 17 that we see any reference to God. And it's not even a direct reference to God's activity. Verse 17 says that the midwives feared God. And we're going to talk about what it is to fear God in point number 3. But for now, we need to consider what the writer is doing by not speaking of God even more directly. What he's doing is he is setting the stage. He's making it very clear that evil forces are present. Pharaoh seems to be front and center. The situation seems bad. 
Just like in our lives today, the trials of life seem so big. Our sins seem so big. These things seem to take front, front and center stage. They often feel more present in our lives than God himself feels. But we need to notice what is actually happening here. Even though there are only indirect mentions of God in this chapter, this chapter is written in a way in which God is shown, even in a veiled way, to be more powerful and more at work than the scheming Pharaoh. Listen, even though God is only mentioned in a, in a veiled way and in an indirect way, did you notice that Pharaoh is not even named at all? He's not given a name. Pharaoh's not a name. Pharaoh's a title, and there are many pharaohs with different names. But in this historical account, no name is given, nor will there be throughout the remainder of this book. And actually, this is an Egyptian style of recording history. The Egyptians, when they were recording the events of their kingdom and of battles that they had fought and wars that they had been in, they would often not mention the enemy's name, the nation or the leaders of that. Why? Because in their pride, they almost wanted to indicate that these people were non-entities compared to their own power and control. That's an, an Egyptian style of historical recording. And so Moses, who we're going to find out in the next chapters, was raised and likely educated in Egypt. He writes in a very similar way in order to suggest, ironically, the same things about Egypt itself. The lack of a name for Pharaoh, but this reference to God in verse 17, even in an indirect way. And then in chapter 3 at the burning bush, when God speaks his name over Moses in such a powerful way. All of this is to suggest that as powerful as this Pharaoh and his people may seem, they are non-entities before the living God. This is highlighted even more so in our text by the fact that while Pharaoh is not named, the ruler of the superpower nation in the world at the time, he's not named. Two midwives are named. Two midwives are named. Their names are Shipra and Pua. And these two women, through their courage and ingenuity, actually make the superpower Pharaoh look pretty foolish. They together thwart his plan to kill all the baby boys. We're actually going to talk more next week about the role that women play in this Exodus account. Friends, what does all this show? It shows that God's ways are not our ways. That his power is greater than all the power of our enemies? Yes, we'd be lying if we said there is no war going on. But the evil characters in this war who seem so strong and powerful before the living God, they are actually non-entities. And those among us that the world would say are weak and would criticize and belittle us when the Lord is on our side... We are actually powerful and central to God's work in this world as well. And so even though the evil setting is being clearly said, even though it feels like this Pharaoh is front and center, Moses intentionally highlights how the Lord is active in all of it. The Lord is named. God is named. Pharaoh is not named. The Lord's people are named. Pharaoh is not named. His people are you and I, weak though we may seem, when the Lord is on our side, we are able to easily thwart the attacks of the superpower leaders and nations of this world. We are able to stand strong. And friends, this narrative, this, this storyline is just going to continue in the chapters to come. Through the plagues that we will see, the Lord, the living God, 
the I am, he's going to systematically dismantle all of the powers of the evil one, all of the Egyptian powers, all of their false gods. They're all going to be crushed under the power of the living God. Even the sea of water will part in his name and by his word, and the enemies will be swallowed up under the waves. Listen, I know, I, I know that there are people in this room who feel like they're suffering is front and center. Your entire outlook this week has been your pain and your sorrow and your grief. It is center stage. You can name your suffering. You can name your sinful mistakes, your suffering and pain. It doesn't feel like a non-entity today. No, they feel very real and very strong. It's actually God who feels like he is absent in your midst and in your suffering. God feels like a non-entity. It feels like God is absent. You can put a name to your suffering. It's, it's called a broken marriage. It's called abuse. It's called Crohn's disease. It's called infertility. It's called adultery. It's called joblessness. It's called divorce. It's called addiction. All of these feel like they are front and center, and God himself feels so absent. But when we allow God's word to speak to us and to remind us of his truth, we are able to remember that despite all of these things which seem to be center stage, he alone is on the stage of our lives, and he will reign over all the darkness. Church, God fights for us. He fights for us, and nothing and no one can compete with him. He is the man of war. He's the man of war. That, that phrase, man of war, that might be uncomfortable for you. Why do we think about our, our God, our Heavenly Father, as a man of war? It's appropriate to think of him that way. It's appropriate because here in Exodus, specifically in Exodus 15, when God's power has been put on full display and the Israelites are delivered from Egypt and he, their enemies are crushed under the waves of the water, Moses and the people of Israel sing. And they sing in chapter 15 and they say these words, we we will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Gloriously, the horse and his rider, they're thrown into the sea, can't even see them anymore. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He's opened the way and delivered me from it all. This is my God, they say. We will praise him. This is my Father's God. We will exalt him. Listen, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Moses and the people of Israel, they couldn't help but sing and sing of the God, their God who is a man of war because God had proven himself as more powerful than all the schemes of the evil one. He is the mighty one. And friends, we know his name, don't we? We know his name, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. He is the one who would take on flesh to dwell among us. The one who would be called Jesus. He is the one who, when he was born, another king named Herod would call for all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two to be killed as well. He is the one who would actually flee with his parents, Mary and Joseph, into Egypt so that he would later come out of Egypt, just like Moses came out of Egypt, in order to save his people from their sins. Not just a Pharaoh, but from sin and death itself. This Jesus that we worship and we sang about earlier today, though he is gentle and lowly towards you in your sin, he is the mighty man of war. 
and he has fought for you. And if your faith is in him, you have life and strength and hope no matter your circumstances. Glory to his name. He has done great things. And my friends, he is still in the business of doing great things. He will fight for you, Christian. He will defend you. The evil in your life, the enemies in your world, they are non-entities compared to the Lord who reigns over all. And he actually invites you to stand out and to fight with him. Point number three, our weapon in war. Our weapon in war. You know, when we suffer, which all of us are suffering in some way, but when we suffer and we experience pain and, and loss and grief, all those things can make us feel lost and confused, can't they? When, when we are enduring a trial, life can feel very confusing and very disorienting. We almost don't know which way is up. We don't know what direction to go. We don't know how to orient our lives. Suffering can, can make us feel lost and confused. Suffering can make us feel like we're lost in the wilderness or in, in a desert without any clear direction towards, towards safety. We don't know where to turn or where to walk or how to get home. But when we are lost in a wilderness, having a compass makes all the difference, doesn't it? Knowing what is true north changes everything. Friends, this is what the fear of God is for the people of God. This is what we see the fear of God being for the people of God and for these midwives in particular. Verse 17, again, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Think about, think about how disorienting that must have been for these two women. The leader of a superpower nation is telling them to do something for him. Certainly to disobey would have been dangerous for themselves and for the people of God. How confusing and disorienting that must have been. But they don't act lost at all, do they? They don't act confused in the midst of this suffering and danger. No, they have clarity and they have direction. Why? Because verse 17 but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They feared God. They feared the Lord, and the fear of the Lord led them to defend life and to fight evil. And we don't know exactly how they did this. It's kind of funny. You can kind of picture Pharaoh, right? He thinks that he's in control. He subjugates them to hard labor. That's not really working out so well because they multiplied greatly. He takes a different route and calls these midwives to him and says, here's what you need to do. You need to kill all the baby boys. That'll solve the problem. And you can just see like nine months, 18 months go by, a couple years go by, and him looking out his palace window being like, there's a lot of little boys running around. Where are they coming from? This isn't what I planned. This isn't working out. So he calls the midwives to himself and he says, what have you done? And they just say, because the Hebrew women are not, not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. We don't even know whether that's true. Maybe it's a lie. I don't know. But, but, we, but it, it could have been any number of things. The midwives probably were at home and they got the call, hey, Susan's going into labor. Great. Okay, I'll, I'll be right over. Let me just finish washing the dishes. Let me, let me vacuum real quick. Let me, let me, let me make dinner. Oh, she already had the baby. Oh, it's a boy. What do you know? I'm so sorry I wasn't here in time. We don't know exactly how this went down, but they're spoken of with honor and respect because of their courage. They feared God. What does it mean to fear God? 
Does it mean that they just were more scared of God than they were of Pharaoh? That they chose to cower before one ruler instead of another because that danger was greater than the other? No, that's not what the fear of the Lord is. Biblically speaking, to, to fear God means to honor God. It means to revere God. It means to respect God. It means, it means to follow God, to give him the respect and honor and, and loyalty that he deserves. To, to fear the Lord means that you, like Moses before the burning bush, took off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. You see that God is holy and good and right, that he deserves your respect and honor and devotion more than Pharaoh who threatens, more than anyone else, more than anything else. The fear of God means that your life orients around true north which is God himself that's how it was with the midwives they feared God they honored him more than they were scared of Pharaoh and friends look at the effect that it had through their appropriate fear and honor and devotion to God they were given courage to live in a way that pushed back evil in their lives it was used by God to bring about the birth of many children and made many families happy, including bringing about the birth of Moses, who would become God's chosen deliverer for his people. Their fear of God, their worship of God, their honor of God led them to fight with and for God. Friends, here's, here's what I want to say this morning. Listen, if these midwives who lived in slavery in Egypt on the tail end of 400 years, if they were part of a people who had been enslaved for 400 years, if they were part of a people who, who seemed to have, for all intents and purposes, been forgotten by God, but yet knew that he could still be trusted because of his word and his promises, if they saw and believed that he could be faithful in this way to lead them to such courage, church, how much more should we fear the Lord? We who know not just the story of Exodus and how they got out, but we who know the ultimate deliverance of the gospel through Jesus Christ. How much more can we fear and love and devote ourselves to him? How much more can we orient around him and only him? How much more should he be our true north in every area of life? How much more can we be bold and courageous to live for him in this world? Because that's what the fear of the Lord does for us, right? It's like a weapon in this war that we are in. Christian, you are not empty-handed. This year, you're not empty-handed. You haven't been disarmed by the enemy. You are not without strength. No, the fear of God, trust in your faithful God, belief in him and in his grace is your greatest strength. It is your confidence. It is your joy, and it will give you courage and strength to live for him. To speak against the sinful tendencies and schemes of our culture, which are many. To fight for his justice in the world. To fight for unity together. To fight our own pride and sinfulness. Listen, our lives can be so confusing. It feels like we're lost at times. Living in this sin-sick world is so disorienting. Trials make us feel hopeless. But how powerful the fear of God is. The honor of God. Trust in God. Worship of God can be and will be your strength. He is your true north. He is the compass. Fear of God means that we look to him to bring us safely home. Fear of God means that he gives us confidence and strength along the way. He strengthens us and he directs us. Fear of God does not just bring a, a passive comfort into our lives. Fear and honor of God is not just a, a passive truth that we 
are aware of but don't find any purpose in. No, it is a weapon for us to go on the offensive with. Fear, honor, trust of God. It is our weapon against injustice. It gives us the strength to stand for truth in this culture. Fear, honor, trust of God is our weapon against the tendencies of our culture to to bully those who are weaker or those who are different from us and oppress them. It, It fights against that and honors God and his image in other people. Fear, honor, trust of God. It's our weapon against depression because it reminds us that our life has purpose even when you feel worthless. It's our greatest weapon against self-pity because the fear of the Lord and the honor of the Lord acknowledges that no matter how pitiful and dirty and broken you feel by your sin, you know that he has had pity on you and he has fought for you and made you his own. Fear and honor and trust of God is our weapon against condemnation and guilt. Because the fear of the Lord reminds us that the light of the gospel has dispelled the darkness of our sin. No matter what lustful and sexual mistakes you have made, your your true north is not the condemnation of your past sexual sins, but your true north is your sinless Savior who has forgiven you and washed you clean. Fear and honor and trust of God, it is our weapon against inactivity and laziness in the Christian life. God wants us to fight with him this year. He's calling us to stand up and to pursue righteous living. Righteous living in our own hearts and in our culture. He wants us to pursue foster care, to love the fatherless, to be generous towards those in need, to serve those in our community. He's calling us to stand up and to commit our fellow, to our fellowship groups so that we can be made strong, to raise our hand and say that our marriage needs help. He wants to stand with us and help us to, to live the life that he has called us to live and to push back evil in our lives and in this world, to commit all that we are to him and to him alone. Church, so many Christians feel as if they are bringing a little knife to the gunfight of this life. They feel as if they have nothing to fight with, but nothing could be farther from from the truth for those who know Jesus. You have the Lord. We know his name. And before him, all other issues, all other enemies, all other sorrows and pains We still feel them, but ultimately they are non-entities. They are real. We must endure, but the man of war is on our side, and he will sustain and strengthen and ultimately deliver us from all who oppose him.